I wonder in our lives how many times you have heard the phrase born again or born again Christians. I imagine most of us here tonight have heard that phrase many, many, many times in our life and we've even used that phrase in our life. I remember it was back in 1976, and, and it's easy for me to remember 76, because that's when I graduated. Well, actually, that's when we got married. That's why I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at her to see if she figured out what I was saying. But, uh, uh, but there was a book that was written by Chuck Colson. I don't know whether some of you... Some of you younger people don't know who Chuck Colson is, but many of the older ones of us remember Chuck Colson, and he wrote a book entitled Born Again, and lots of people read that book. It was amazing back then that many people were willing to make professions that they were born again, and of course, the Billy Graham's crusades were going on, and and uh, and, and um, being able to um, reach people and get people to come to church seem to be so different than today. Uh, today, people don't know anything about the Bible. They don't know anything about being born again. Maybe they've heard the phrase, but they don't know what that is. But many famous musicians and actors um, have spoken out in, in, in back then and stated that they too were born again Christians. Because it has been used so much, I think that the term has lost much of its meaning in our day-to-day. Uh, people seem to hear the phrase, but they, do, they, they don't really understand exactly what that means. Being born again, however, is one of the most important Christian truths that we should know, and in fact, it is the foundation of our faith. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 51 and verse 10 and said, Create in me a pure heart, a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has, has gone or passed away, and the new has come. As we study tonight in John chapter 3 and verses um, 1 through 7, we will see the importance of being born again, and we will see how God in his love provided a way for us to receive this new birth. New birth. And, and, and we will also look into how we can examine our own selves to see whether we are truly born again or not. And so we pick up our reading there in verse 1, and it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And then verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, one of the greatest lies, of course, of, of Satan it, that has been imposed on the human race is that religion can save you. That's a lie straight from hell. By religion, I mean adherence to the beliefs and practices of a religion or a group of people in the hope that your performance somehow will gain you a right standing with God. And so it doesn't really matter whether it, whether it is Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism or Judaism or even Christianity, There has always been millions who mistakenly thought that obedience to their religion would earn them eternal life somehow. The four Gospels make it clear that the most difficult people to reach with the Gospel are not the notoriously wicked people, but rather the outwardly religious people. And I've often said that many times the hardest thing we we have to do in in leading a person to the Lord is to get them lost first because they they don't understand the fact that they are lost and they are desperately in need of salvation. There are numerous accounts of corrupt tax collector and immoral people in the gospel who come to Christ in salvation. Because, you see, they knew that they were sinners and that they could not save themselves. But it was the religious crowd that opposed Jesus and, of course, eventually crucified him. They were blind to their own sins of pride and self-righteousness. The religion served not to save them, but in fact condemned them. But Jesus didn't come to promote a religion. He did not flatter those who were religious by saying that he was glad to see their religious activity and that he too was a religious person. We don't see anything of that of Christ when he was on earth. In fact, when the religious leaders complained that Jesus socialized with sinners, he replied in Luke 5 in verse 31 and 32, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, we need to understand that Jesus was not saying that some are religious enough to be able to get into heaven by their own good deeds, and so he didn't need to talk to them about being saved. That's not what he's saying. Rather, by the righteous, he meant the self-righteous. Their pride blinded them to their sin and kept them from coming to Jesus for for forgiveness and, and ultimately for salvation. Now, last week, if you remember, when we, we looked at John chapter 2, and we looked at the last uh, couple of verses there in verses 23 and 25, where many believed in Jesus as they saw the signs or the miracles that he was doing, but Jesus didn't believe in them because he could see the true condition of their hearts. And as I explained, those verses served 
serves as an introduction for us tonight to the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. And John connects these stories, I, I said last week, by using the word man or men. John said there in verse 24 that Jesus knew all men. And then he added in verse 25, because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And remember, there, there were no chapter breaks in the original writings of John. The original text didn't have the chapters. Our, 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 our translators put the chapters in there and the verses to help us to be able to read and, and know where we were at. But there, there, were no, there were no breaks. And so the very next verse, verse 1 of chapter 3, just continues on. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So Jesus knew all men, he knew what was in men, and there was a man named Nicodemus. There's also a connection between the people who observed Jesus' signs that we saw there in verse 23 of chapter 2, and Nicodemus' open, open statement to Jesus in chapter 3 and verse 2 when he says, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. A further connection is that Jesus, knowing all men and what was in man, is evident in his reply then to Nicodemus. Jesus, you see, could see beneath Nicodemus's religious veneer. He needed the new birth. And so this encounter teaches us that religion can't save you because to enter God's eternal kingdom, you need a new birth that only comes through the Holy Spirit. So the story of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus runs from, from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through verse 21. But somewhere after about verse 12, Nicodemus kind of fades out as, Jesus, as John records Jesus' words about the Son of Man being lift up, lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And probably the direct words of Jesus fade away after verse 15. And then what we have in verses 16 to 21 is more or less John's commentary running on there about the whole thing that took place. So today we're only going to look at verses 1 to 8. We're not going to look at all of them. So the first thing that we see is religions can't deal with the fundamental human need. And that fundamental human need is to be reconciled to the holy God and to enter into his kingdom. Nicodemus needed salvation. Verse 1, John begins by telling us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee and added that he was ruling. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So this means that he belonged to the Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Jerusalem the, that consisted of 71 members from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the Sadducees were almost all from the aristocracy and were more political than they were religious. They held to some pretty heretical religious beliefs, and we're not going to get into those tonight, 
But the Pharisees, on the other hand, were largely middle-class businessmen who were concerned about following the Jewish law, and they had separated themselves. And in, in fact, the word Pharisee probably comes from a word meaning to separate, to withdraw from others, to be different from others. So they separated from the common people by their strict adherence to their many regulations and their rules. So we have the law of Moses, but then we have hundreds and hundreds of rules and regulations that the religion put on top of that. And the Pharisees would adhere to those things, or at least make others adhere to it. So Nicodemus was apparently a leading Pharisee because Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. We see that down in in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? He must have been a, a, a recognized religious authority in Jesus' day. So John tells us then in verse 2 that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. There, there have been many speculations about why he did this. Why did he come at night? Perhaps the most likely is that he was afraid of what other members of the council would think about him. We don't know for sure, but that's probably the most likely thing. But there are some who suggested that since most of John's references tonight have a spiritual symbolism attached to it, that John might have been hinting at Nicodemus's spiritual condition, that he was in the night season of his life spiritually. Although he was a religious leader, he was in spiritual darkness. And Nicodemus seems to have been impressed by Jesus and the signs which Jesus was doing. Because, you see, for a a leader of the Sanhedrin to come to the, the quarters of an uneducated Gentile carpenter and address him as rabbi... He does that there in, in, in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi. And not only that, but he acknowledges, he says, We know that you are teacher come from God. That was no small matter. Now, perhaps Nicodemus used the, the plural we there to refer, for, to refer to a few of his colleagues but he may also be hiding behind them a bit so as not to signal too much interest on his own part. And so kind of spreading, spreading that around a little bit. We, it's not just me, but we. But in spite of his, his complimentary greeting, Nicodemus's view of Jesus fell far short of acknowledging Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, which is necessary, in fact, to receive eternal life. That's what John tells us in chapter 20 and verse 31. That's why John wrote wrote his account of Jesus' life, that we might see and hear and understand all these things and that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Now, the basic error of the Pharisees was to, to externalize religion. In other words, they, they invented all sorts of, of man-made regulations to add to the law of Moses, and they took pride in their observances of these things. It wasn't anything internal. Was everything on the external that people could see? Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at how I'm 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 fulfilling these things. And so Jesus blasted them for the their hypocrisy as they as they would ceremonially try to cleanse the outside. Jesus said. You clean the outside of the cup and the dishes, but you neglect to deal with the sin that is in your heart, he said in Matthew chapter 23. So it's all external. It's anything in the heart. Other places he calls them whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones because the outside looked good of the cemeteries. All of, the, all of the, the grave sites were whitewashed and they looked beautiful. But when you went into those tombs with the stench of death and rotten bones, he said, that's what your life is like. As we saw in John chapter 2 and verses 23 and 25, The important thing with the Lord is what is in our heart. It's not what we do on the outside. It's not how we clean ourselves up. It's not not the words that we say or, or the practices that we have. It has nothing to do with anything external that we could do or might even think about doing, but it has everything to do with what's in the heart. And so he sees and he judges the thoughts and the intention of our hearts. And later when the the Pharisees questioned Jesus about why his disciples did not wash their hands according to their tradition, he blasted them. In Mark chapter 7, he said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. Jesus tore right into them. He saw through them. He saw their heart. And so those who who are into religion deceives themselves by thinking that their outward rituals and their outward rules will somehow impress God, while at the same time they dodge dealing with the sin that is in their own heart. But of course, God sees right through all of that. He, he, He cuts right to the heart of things. He requires truth in the innermost being. And so religion cannot gain anyone access into heaven because it only deals with the external matter. So no matter so no 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 amount of rule keeping or adherence to religious rituals can reconcile a sinner to a holy God. It, can, it just can't be done. So you would think that Jesus would be elated at the, the, the prospect of winning a member of the Sanhedrin as one of his followers. 
In fact, this guy could be a key disciple. I mean, think of his influence on others. Think of how his testimony would impress the other religious leaders, not to mention the common people of the day. But Jesus showed no excitement about Nicodemus coming to him and saying you know, all those things. And there was no deference, no eager uh, politeness. There was not even an attempt at persuading or accommodating. Jesus was no respecter of person. Rather, he cut to the quick by telling Nicodemus to be reconciled to God you must be reborn from above. You see that there in verse, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And notice here that Jesus answered. But Nicodemus had not asked a question. But Jesus answered. B.F. Whitcott remarks, the Lord answered not his words, but his thoughts. Jesus did that a lot to people. He knew their thoughts. He knew what was in their heart. And he answered them before they even asked the question. So Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus's heart, and he answered him accordingly. And three times, we see it in verse, five, verse 3, verse 5, verse 11. In this interview, three times, Jesus uses the phrase, most assuredly. Or verily, verily, maybe your translation says, Jesus in verse 3 answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you. In, in verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you. And then in verse 10, Most assuredly, I say to you. So, so, or 11. So he's saying it over and over again. And basically, it's a, it's, it, it transliterates or kind of comes up with a phrase um, from the Aramaic, a word that we would use sometimes is the word amen, which came from a verb meaning to confirm. So it was used to give assent to the words uttered by another. We still use that word today. Oftentimes when, when, when I'm listening to somebody preach and they make a statement, I'll say Amen. I'm affirming, I'm agreeing, I'm saying, yes, that's it. Sick them is what, what it is. You know, go, preach it. I love preaching in, in uh, some of the, the black churches I preached in uh, years ago. Uh, man, they, they fire you up. They're shouting out, preach it, brother, go, you're doing it. You know, and, and they're right in there with you. And so that's the idea there. Uh, Jesus used the phrase to give added significance and attention to what follows. And the point that Jesus wanted to hammer home to Nicodemus is, you don't need further instruction in religion. You need to be born again. You need to see yourself as a sinner who needs more than moral or religious improvements. You need nothing less than a new life that only comes from God. As Jesus will go on to say in verses 14 uh, down through verse 16, 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have, ever, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so Jesus is saying, you need to see me as more than a religious teacher, a rabbi. You need to see me more than that. You need to see me as your Savior lifted up on a cross to bring salvation to sinners. That's what you need to see, Nicodemus. Now, now, Morris put it this way. He said, in, in one sentence, he swept away all that Nicodemus stood for and demanded that he be made, be remade by the power of God. So Jesus wiped it all out. Jesus wasn't impressed at all by the fact that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a religious leader. Didn't impress him. And so born again is, is kind of an ambiguous and, and may also mean born from above. Both are true, and John may intend that we understand both meanings, born again and born from above. William Barclay in his, his writings of the Gospel of John, I think, captures both meanings with one phrase, reborn from above. And the idea is that Jesus was, was telling Nicodemus he needed, he needed new life. The idea is that just as we were born physically, so we need to be born spiritually. And such a birth requires the power of God. It's not something that we can do. So Nicodemus, as a Jew and a Pharisee at that, would have been proud of the fact that he was not a Gentile, but he was born as a Jew. But Jesus showed him that being a Jew, even a religious Jew, is not enough to get him into heaven. He needed a new birth as a spiritual child of God. He tells us that in chapter 1 in verses 12 and 13. And so Jesus says here in verse 3 that we must be born again to see the kingdom of God. These verses in verse 3 and verse 5 are the only references to the kingdom in John, in John's writing, except for chapter 18 and, and verse 36 when he was before Pilate. And then also in chapter 6 and verse 15, after he'd fed the, the 5,000 and he perceived that they wanted to take him away and make him king, Jesus slipped, a, slipped aside and went up into the mountains. And then later his disciples got in a boat and go to the other side and, and Jesus went walking out to them in the middle of the night. And then they get to the other side and the next day the people, well, where's Jesus? And they found out he's on the other side. How did you get over here? And so in that area, we also see this kingdom. So it's a major theme, though, when you look at the synoptic gospels, when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You see it running all the way through there. So, so here it refers to the Messianic kingdom for which all Jews hoped. So Ed Blum explains in Bible Knowledge Commentary, the kingdom is the, is the sphere or the realm of God's authority and blessing, which is now invisible, but will be, be manifest on the earth. And he uses Matthew 6, 
10 for that. So to see, the word see there, the kingdom in verse 3 is basically equal to entering, the word entering, the kingdom in verse 5. So verse 3, he said, see the kingdom. Verse 5, he says, entering the kingdom. With the slight difference that see, the word see, implies spiritual perception. That's what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 2. And Dia Carson explains to a Jew with the background and conviction of Nicodemus to see the kingdom of God was to participate in the kingdom at the end of the age to experience eternal resurrection life. So to be a proper subject of God's kingdom, though, you have to be subject to the king. And that subjection begins here. And now, not in a distant future. So the problem is that those who are in the flesh are by nature hostile towards God, and they are not able to subject themselves to God. And as Paul explained in Romans 8, verses 68, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. John Calvin in his commentaries infers that since our whole nature needs the new birth, There is nothing in us that is not sinful. Corruption has spread throughout our entire life. There is no good in us at all. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We are sinners in need of a Savior and in need of rebirth from above to have a new life. And so we need a radical transformation, not just some makeover or some modification. We need something that the natural man cannot produce in their life. We need need nothing less than to be reborn from from above by God. And so Nicodemus was amazed. In verse 7, at Jesus' radical statement that he needed to be born again, he, he, he says there in verse 7, do not marvel, Jesus said, do not marvel. So he was amazed. He said, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. He replies, Nicodemus does. We see his statement there in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And of course, that's when Jesus said what he said. Don't marvel. So it's difficult to understand that what Nicodemus meant by this question. Can a man enter into his mother's womb and be born a, born a second time? Obvious. Lee, he did not believe that Jesus was suggesting that a person goes back into the womb of his mother and be reborn physically. 
And John MacArthur in the gospel according to Jesus thinks that Nicodemus was really saying, I can't, I can't start all over. It's too late. I've gone too far in my religious system to start over. There's no hope for me if I must be born from the beginning. He says that Jesus was demanding, John MacArthur says that Jesus was demanding that Nicodemus forsake everything that he stood for, and Nicodemus knew that. And that might be. That, that might be. There's very few things that I, I question that John MacArthur says. There are some things that I, I just wonder about. But I think that maybe D.A. Carson may be more on target when he suggests that Nicodemus did not understand what Jesus was talking about at all. His amazement in verse 7 at Jesus' word that he must be born again may indicate a degree of bewilderment simply on Nicodemus' part. In in verse 12, if you look down there uh, to verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So verse 12, Jesus indicts him for not believing what he had just told him. And so Carson says that Nicodemus' answer reflects incredulousness, which, which prompted him to answer with kind of a, a, a crassly, um, legalistic interpretation of what Jesus said to express his degree of scorn for the statement that Jesus made. That might be what was going on there. We don't know for sure. R.C. Sproul goes so far as to suggest that Nicodemus was insulting Jesus by his reply. What are you talking about? Are you suggesting that the man has to enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? What a ridiculous idea that is. So we don't really know for sure where Nicodemus was at in there. So so Jesus, in verse 5, further explains Verse 3, so spiritual rebirth then, and we'll see that in verse 5, requires cleansing from sin and new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. So verses 5 to 7 then now, Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Now, that phrase, born of water and spirit, that has been a subject of numerous interpretations. I'm sure if you've been in church long enough, you've heard a lot of different ideas of what exactly water and spirit is here in this passage. I used to think that born of water referred to physical birth. So that Jesus was responding to Nicodemus' question in verse 4, your physical birth as a Jew, Nicodemus, is not enough. You must also be born spiritually. Now the problem with that, I've come to understand and realize, the problem with that view is that Nicodemus probably would not have understood water in the same way that we understand water today. There's so much stuff out there. Uh, you know, when ladies are having birth and children are born and everything. And Nicodemus probably was clueless to a lot of 
that stuff in physical birth. But then also the Greek construction points to one birth, not two. One birth, born of water and spirit. Not two births, being born of water and born of spirit. So water and spirit in verse 5 is the equivalent of being born from above that we find in verse 3. Now, some things that it refers to Christian baptism. But Christian baptism didn't even exist at this point. Wasn't even there. Jesus was trying to explain things to Nicodemus, not confuse him with the doctrine which he knew nothing about. Why would Jesus talk to him about Christian baptism, which we know is, is, is something that takes place after salvation, which pictures the death, burial, and resurrection? Jesus hadn't died yet. So why would he try to confuse Nicodemus by using a doctrine that wasn't even around yet? Also to teach that sprinkling water on an infant causes the new birth would be to say that religion saves a person, which is the opposite of what's being said here. Now there are some who will try to tell us that it refers to John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism. And, and, and this is a possible interpretation if Jesus was referring to what John's baptism signified, namely repentance from sin, in addition to the repentance of John's baptism, a person must receive what John predicted as Messiah, that he would, be, that he would baptize both with water and with the Holy Spirit. We see in verse 33 of chapter 1. But that seems like a, like a subtle meaning that Nicodemus may easily have missed. I don't think this is something that Jesus is trying to slide over on Nicodemus. I think he's saying something that he knew that Nicodemus would know exactly what he was talking about. It's just a little hard for us to understand because we don't know the language that Jesus was speaking. So others argue that water represents the word of God. We see that, that idea in John 15, 3, Ephesians 5, 20, 25, James chapter 1, verse 18, 1 Peter 1, 22 to 25. But would Nicodemus have understood it in that way as well? They didn't even have the New Testament. They just had the Old Testament scrolls. Others say that water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit so that both terms mean the same thing. This is Calvin's view. And Calvin says this, By water, therefore, is meant nothing more than the inward purification and invigoration which is produced by the Holy Spirit. What was one of the things that the Pharisees and the, the scribes were, were all were all hyped up about Jesus doing things and his disciples not purifying themselves before they did this and purifying before that and you had to purify this and purify that and so the water could mean nothing more than the inward purification and invigoration which is produced by the holy spirit and so and so calvin then would translate and the word and the water and spirit as that is 
which is sometimes the meaning of the two. And so since Jesus reproaches Nicodemus for not understanding these things, in verse 10, he was probably referring to something in the Old Testament. In fact, I believe that he was pointing back to Ezekiel chapter 36. And in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25 to 27, Ezekiel and Nicodemus would have known this. Ezekiel said, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues." That begins to make a little more sense, doesn't it? Because Ezekiel predicted a time when God would cleanse his people from their sins and give them a new heart and a new spirit and put his spirit within them so that they would walk in obedience to his word. That's what Paul says, isn't it? That he took our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And so that promise was fulfilled in Jesus when he ratified the new covenant with his blood and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in all that believed in him. And so Nicodemus knew the Old Testament, and he should have connected, he should have connected Ezekiel's prophecy with Jesus' words in verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He should have connected that. And so Jesus is saying that there is a fundamental division between the physical and the spiritual. In verse 6 there, when, uh, when Jesus says that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that's which is born of the spirit is spirit. Being born physically as a Jew, or in our terms, being born into a Christian family, that's just simply not enough. There must be a second birth. There must be a cleansing from sin um, and, and, and creates new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can give us new life. As Carson puts it, what is in view is a new nature, not turning over a new leaf. A lot of people today, that's what they want to do. They just want to turn over a new leaf. They just want to, they want to clean themselves up a little bit. They don't want a radical change in their life. And so, so just as physical birth happens at a point in time, so spiritual birth happens at a, at, at a point in time, right? But just as we don't remember our physical birth, so we may not remember or be able to pinpoint a time of our spiritual birth. Oh, I, I remember the day when I made a profession of faith. I remember that. The hard thing to know for sure is at what moment does that new birth happen? Was it when I actually told the pastor I wanted to say a prayer? Or did it happen the week before as I thought about it and contemplated and thought, when I get to church, I'm going to accept Christ? When, when did it take place? Um, the way we can know that we are born again 
is not necessarily pointing to an exact day, even though we, we stress that a lot. But the way that we know we are born again is that we observe signs of new life in our heart, right? I mean, faith in Christ and his promise of eternal life, love for God that I never had before, a new desire for the things of God in my life, thankfulness to God for his abundant mercy in Christ, a growing hunger for the word of God, love for God's people, and in fact, not just God's people, but all people, a mourning of and a hatred of sin and a desire for holiness. Now, all that didn't take place the very first day, the first moment that I accepted Christ. But as I started growing, I began to see these things, and it became more and more evident to me that I did indeed have new life, that the old things are passing away. And all things are becoming new. In short, you will have new desires for God that you didn't have before new birth. It is not that you will never desire again to sin, but rather that the new direction of your life will be marked by these new desires that come from the new birth. H.A. Ironside told the story about years ago, a bishop by the name of John Taylor Smith, a former chaplain general of the British Army, was preaching in a large cathedral on, on the text, you must be born again. And he said, my dear friends, do not substitute anything for the new birth. You may be a member of a church, but church membership is not new birth. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, the rector was sitting there to his left side, and he pointed to him sitting over there, and he said, you may be a clergyman like my friend the rector here and not be born again and ex expect a man, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he looked over to his right and, and, and the archdeacon was sitting over there and he pointed to him and he continued, you might even be an archdeacon like my, my friend here and still not be born again, but except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You might even be a bishop like myself and not be born again, but except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, he's just pounding this away. Well, several days later, he received a letter from the archdeacon, which read in part, my dear bishop, you have found me out. I've been a clergyman for over 30 years, but I have never known anything of the joy that Christ, that Christians speak of. I never could understand it. But when you pointed at me and said that, said that a person could be an archdeacon and not be born again? I understood what the trouble was. Would you please come and talk with me? And of course, Bishop Smith went and talked with him, and the archdeacon responded to Christ's call of salvation. What about you? You may be religious, but religion can't save you. You must be born again. Don't settle for anything else. Cry out to God that he would, would, would cause you 
to be born again. Don't say, well, I've just always been in church, or I've been this, or I've been that. You must be born again. Let's pray.